You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. What is the thread that connects us to complex characters? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. It's alumni week on the podcast, Artful Periscope. Both of my guests have joined me in the past for my favorite series of all time called Writers on the Vine, took place every summer on the grounds of Palmer Vineyards in the east end of Long Island, sitting on a deck with guests in the audience, book sales and everything else, but it was the best setting I've ever been in. And I thank both of my guests this week for coming back because uh, I miss them. I really do miss them. And they're both very talented writers. On this episode, the author of The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and The Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood, Julian Rubenstein will join us momentarily. And after a short pause, coming into the studio, Ellen Meister stops by to discuss her latest novel, The Rooftop Party. Julian, welcome to the podcast. It's been quite a while, my friend. Great to be here, Larry. And uh, yes, I'm glad you mentioned the Riders on the Vine. That was indeed a beautiful setting and um, happy to be part of the alumni of that and uh, to be back on the show. I came away as I dug into the book with two different impressions. So I'm going to throw it out there and let you react if you don't mind. My sure. first impression is I was a big fan of The Wire. I think it was one of the best episodic TV series ever. I think it's better than The Sopranos, my personal opinion. But it, it really speaks to David Simon's connection to Baltimore. Your book, in a sense, also addresses your connection to Denver, and we'll explore that. And then my second observation was, on a deeper level, your book is not roots, but it is in many ways a multi-generational story about people trapped by circumstances beyond their control. Would you agree or disagree? I agree. I think it's a um, appropriate and accurate reading um, of the book. Now, in the, the prologue seems to me almost cinematic. There's this big th phrase right now in all the news networks, the view from 30,000 feet above. In the prologue, one of your main characters, most important person of all, Terrence Roberts, and we'll talk about him because he is the thread through all of the book and he's a fascinating character. Um, he's standing on a rooftop looking down. Take us through that scene. Uh, so the, the, the sort of crime at the center of the book uh, takes place in this opening scene of the book before I go back in time to another uh, two generations before that. Um, and yeah, it opens with Terrence Roberts, former gang leader from this neighborhood, who's on top of the building, his building, that was doing anti-gang work. It's a small building, and, and he had an organization called Prodigal Son. And he was there on the day uh, that he was having a peace rally um, it's for unity and against gang violence. And right before there was to be this opening of a brand new Boys and Girls Club that he'd campaigned for right in the middle of Holly Square, this centerpiece of the book as well, which is, you know, the center of this neighborhood and a sort of site of, of tragedy and I, I, I suppose possibly transition over decades. And so he's looking out at, you know, the people who he's both been trying to help and who also are at times um, his, uh, yeah, not necessarily his enemies as much as potential dangers to him. And uh, it's the lead up to what, as I mentioned, does become, you know, the crime at the center of the book. Now, in the summer of 2013, 2013, what was going on in Denver? Um, that was sort of the beginning or, yeah, probably around the beginning of what was a significant um, uh, population boom as well as a housing boom there. Um, and uh, in this particular neighborhood, uh, Northeast Park Hill, which is in Northeast Denver, um, this was uh, also a place of significant transition. And that included this Holly Square, which had been burned. The, the, the main place there, the Holly Shopping Center, had been burned to the ground. 
in 2008 by the Crips. It was the sort of known headquarters of the Bloods in Denver, and their first their first gang in Denver. And it was that when that thing was burned down, it took a couple of years, but suddenly a lot of people were interested in redeveloping it. Uh, one of whom was Terrence Roberts, who was a third generation resident of the community and saw an opportunity after he'd been he'd, he'd been a blood, gone to prison, come out and was doing anti-gang work and realized also that he wanted to redevelop, be, be a big part of redeveloping that site. What brought you to Terrence Roberts? You, when the days of Rudders and the Vine, I think you were living in Brooklyn at that time, but you come mm-hmm. from Denver. Why did you make the decision to go back and explore this story? Because it's not like writing a novel. A lot of time, yeah. a lot of effort. And from the listeners, can you tell us when you first started working on this and the time frame till it was finally published? Yep. So I first read about it in the New York Times when I was still living in Brooklyn. I had grown up in Denver, but I'd been living in New York for, you know, almost 20, 20 years around that. Um, and I'd never done a story in the place where I'd grown up and was always curious and, you know, followed the news. I had friends and some family there. And so I saw the news about the shooting in September of 2013. It took me a few months to both get a hold of Terrence as well as uh, get out there, but it did strike me right off the bat as very intriguing. I didn't know what it would be at first, but I was interested in pursuing a potential magazine story, maybe a book, maybe a documentary. I didn't know. Um, but here was this anti-gang activist who, uh, you know, the, the, the shooting that I just described um, that happened on that day uh, was uh, Terrence Roberts, the anti-gang activist, shoots a gang member at his own peace rally. Um, and facing a long prison term. And there was really, um, to me, some real big questions about, well, certainly why this happened. I, not, I thought of it, that that was what was intriguing all along, because I've done several crime stories. And actually, as you know, my first book, I guess, you know, certainly could be considered a crime story. It was a, it was a bank robber at the heart of it, um, and a lot of robberies. Um, a totally different story. But, uh, but this... Um, was sort of not a who done it, but a why done it. And we knew who was holding the gun off from from the start, but the why was really intriguing. You know, not only Terrence and his background, but also, as I'd mentioned just a little bit about the neighborhood and the tra- and, and its history and what it was going through at the time the shooting happened. So there was a lot to it uh, for me to be interested in it, and I and I did fly home a couple different times. The first time I met Terrence was early February of 2014, um, and I think I did a book proposal in the in the, that summer. Um, and I ultimately did, really was reporting on the book all the way up to February of 2021, um, when the book finally was put to bed, and the epilogue really ends right around there. Um, so I, I actually one thing that's you know been funny to think about is that a lot of writers do it's almost a cliche that they miss their book deadline in this case it was really fortunate that i did because as you know from sorry i might have here i'll just back up to the beginning of that sentence that was an amber alert on my phone okay okay um but um uh as you know from reading the the epilogue uh, the the events of 2020 and the George Floyd and even in Denver, the Justice for Elijah McLean movement, which became really big, even nationally, uh, was something that Terrence was significantly involved in. And that whole part of the story, even though it's quite at the end of it, to me became very significant in terms of what it was able to say and show about everything that had come before it. My guest is the author of The Holly, Five bullets, one gun, and the struggle to save an American neighborhood. We're having a conversation with Julian Rubenstein. I want to mention something because we said this was alumni week from all the people that came to Rutgers on the Vine in the past. Two of those people got mentions in the July 4th edition of the New York Times editor's picks. One was Joshua Henkin, a great writer, and the other one was yourself. That's that's validation. Would you agree with that? It was great to get. It really was, of course. Um, it's 
it's a very complicated book and it's also a book that clearly at this time so i'm also doing a documentary by the way and especially in that world it's i've run up against this but but right now there's a lot of talk of course appropriately so about like who's telling whose stories right. and i do address it a little bit in the book you know i'm a white person um who ended up doing this story that's you know uh, you could have, and there are, of course, I think I'd portray this in the book. There's a lot of different sides to this story. And I tried not to take a side, you know, um, I tried to play it down the middle and as a journalist, and I felt so much from the beginning that one of the reasons I was doing it was that there was a real gap between what I was seeing publicly known or in the media about this story and what I was actually finding in my reporting. So I did not, um, you know, in any way feel like that I, I should be, for, for, for example, the one to tell the story and not someone else who's from the community, but there wasn't that happening. And ultimately it got to a point where I did earn the trust, but it was, it was, you know, so I knew coming out with a book like that, I felt like that was, uh, you know, one thing that I would be asked about or how would that affect me? And, and I, I, I was very, yeah, of course, gratified and happy that the New York times, um, appreciated the work. And it was, you know, it was a lot of, um, both investigative reporting in a classic sense and also, um, sort of shoe leather, right. I guess, reporting, right. Right. you would say. Yeah. And so both together, I think we're able to um, hopefully carry the, the the weight and the and and show the significance of what I happen to manage to capture. Capture. Let's go back to the main title of the Holly. Tell us about the Holly and why was it a significant African American community? Its role in the community and why was this a, such a central focus, in a sense, to your book? So the community. Um, was in Denver. It was the first um, community in Denver that was called out for a purposeful, as they called it, a pur purposeful integration. There was only one other community in, in Denver that um, was an African-American community and that had been established before this one. And they, you know, this was in, so in 1947. So Denver was a place that had a, a mayor who was a member of the KKK he was the longest ever, remains the longest ever serving mayor. He had five non-consecutive terms ending in 1947 when another mayor said that this particular community should be a, a place where there would be a purposeful integration and another neighborhood where blacks in Denver could live. And it finally ended up starting to happen in 1960. Um, and it, between at that point, it was almost entirely white. It was a, it, it was a, it was a nice neighborhood with small houses that were, you know, nice brick houses, lawns. Right. Um, and, and, and they were originally built with the idea of them being for military families. And there were a couple of military facilities nearby. And, um, and then in 1960, African-Americans began moving in there by 1970, it was total white flight. It became, it was almost, it was something like 99% black in 1970 where it had been almost entirely white in 1960. And sure enough, you know, soon afterward, it fell to many of the same ills that have, that, that, that have befallen other similar communities where they had um, poverty, unemployment, drugs. Ultimately, it did become a gang neighborhood, gun violence. And, you know, I saw the community itself as, and it also, by the way, had been the, the hopeful target of much government funding, huge government programs, including uh, LBJ's War on Poverty. There was a Model Cities program that was that that had money going to this neighborhood. But why did it continue then over these years to have tragedies, including the one that set off the civil rights movement in Denver, in which a police officer shot a young man in Holly Square, this very same place where Terrence Roberts shot a young gang member um, in the crime at the center of the book. So it, it's a, it's clearly was a community that had been under the foot of law enforcement and law enforcement efforts 
and even social services efforts for so long, but yet had continued to have significant problems. And I, you know, was certainly interested in why that would be. Um, it also, you know, did, um, it did have actually strong until, until, you know, the, the peak of the civil rights movement, there were actually a lot of very powerful activists that were around this community. And many of them had been taken out in a variety of ways, often with charges, many times false charges. Um, and, uh, and so the fabric of the community was really disrupted. Um, and I, I, that was very interesting to me and it ultimately became more and more interesting as I learned more about both what was going on in the current period and what had happened in the past, because I definitely started to see how these cycles just kept repeating themselves, um, in the community and how deep it went, including the use of informants in the community and, and for what purpose and what impact that had. You write a lot about the development of gangs in Denver. And I think of, I think it was on FX called hip hop unbound or something. And it's really about the history and the connection between gangs, drugs, violence, and music. So everything came out of the West coast in a sense, South central, those area Compton and kind of migrated to the East. So it's a really important part of your book because I call it, the academics would call it territorial imperative. Everything is broken down into territories and because of these territories, Bloods and Crips and people on the periphery, including uh, Terrence and others and his family, family members, his father and the opposite. He was a blood, I think. There were Crips involved, which ultimately led in sense to the shooting, even though it was blood on blood. You uncover a lot of stuff that's almost like a lesson plan for a lot of people trying to understand the dynamic of gangs and violence. I mean, I, I, one of the things that was most surprising to me, I guess, was the real connection before the violence from the connection between activists and gangs and then how that got sort of disrupted and and sort of um, turned into violence because of so many factors that came into it. But it was fascinating that early on in the 60s, for example, in, in, in during the Watts riots, uh, some of the early gang members like uh, uh, Bunchy Carter, who was a member of the Slossons gang, a classic original gang um, in California. And, and when the Watts riots happened, he ended up becoming an L.A. Black Panther. And then he ended up dead in a in a in a, an assassination that was fomented by the FBI. Um, they fomented a conflict between another group. And so, you know, then looking forward and you see like how the potential in some of these people ends up twisted into their own infighting and how that how there's sort of a real um, hand of law enforcement involved in that, you know, that's 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 often disruptive to and not necessarily helping the situation. So I think that, yeah, I mean, to me, I did feel like we often hear about shootings in certain neighborhoods and there's been plenty of, of studies. And in Denver is a perfect example where a lot of the violence happens in a few neighborhoods and a lot of that violence is unsolved and it's um, not well understood publicly. But I was able to get beyond that where I felt like I did get some insight into how those things happen. And it was definitely unexpected in many of the things I found. In terms of the insight, on the way here, I was listening to a podcast and Danny Trejo was being interviewed, who was a gang member, was in prison, Lee became a, a pretty good actor. And he said, thinking about wh where he came out of his culture and where he is now, he says, in terms of these gangs, it's toxic masculinity. I think that's a pretty astute observation. You know, you have to prove yourself you're tough and you have to prove you're tougher than somebody else. You, you get drawn into violent acts, even though it may not necessarily be your nature. Here on Long Island, there's been a big problem over the last few years, MS-13. Young kids going with machetes and hacking somebody up in the woods because that's expected of them. And that, once again, I think it addresses that insight, what Danny called toxic masculinity. Yeah. 
Do you, do you agree with that? I think that that's part of it for sure. And part of the reason that the anti-gang work that is needs to be done and is being done and often is done funded, in fact, by, you know, city and federal money needs to be very careful about who it works with. I mean, this was a story um, that unexpectedly also gave me a lot of insight into not only how the violence is happening in many ways, and that's definitely one of them. And another of them is how law enforcement is going about trying to combat this. And it was very problematic to see that, in fact, they are often empowering the very people who are leading these gangs and actively still involved to try to supposedly um, help diffuse the situation. And I, I think it's problematic because one of the one of the things those kinds of people who are trying to help stop it need to do so much is be role models because i mean as you mentioned you know the the younger guys are basically doing it to impress older older gang members and earning their stripes and getting their way in and earning their respect and this is a community in which i mean violence is the most the way you gain the most power that that's it and and you know i mean speaking of the wire and even in this story you see how violence and its connections to elected officials other powerful people can help potentially carry out um strategic uh you know uh tasks or 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 efforts uh, to, and because in the end, of course, violence ultimately is maybe the most powerful thing. That's why when all else fails, you go to war or you end up, you know, going, getting physically, uh, combative with someone. So, um, this is really, it, we're talking about, yeah, like how this sort of extreme activity starts and becomes pervasive and whether or not it's being sort of, um, fed or you know coddled to some degree or if if it's being pushed back by efforts uh to combat it and you know the story ended up like i said veering into that in a way i didn't expect either and i thought it was also very illuminating and problematic all right so let's go to the title the title of the book once again is the holly five bullets one gun and the struggle to save an american neighborhood and we're having a conversation with julian Rubenstein. So what happened that day with the five bullets, the one gun, in a sense, a struggle, a knife and everything else and a barbecue's going on? Um, I don't know if you want to give everything away, but I think this is so central to where we first meet Terrence to where, in a sense, he ends up uh, going on trial. And it's really I don't want to say it's an American tragedy, but there's a lot of tragedy in this book. That's for sure. Um, and even in this very place, the Holly Square, you know, where I felt like over the years, there'd just been so much tragedy. And to me, Terrence, also the tragedy, um, in him was sort of so, one of the reasons I found him so compelling was that he seemed so symbolic, not only of the struggle today, but of the struggle and tragedy over the decades that his very ancestors, you know, and, and, and relatives went through. Um, but the yeah it, you know certainly without giving it all away i mean one thing is that as i think you saw with the story which ultimately was really interesting to me was that it is a story actually with with in a way a lot of good gray area i mean and you, you mentioned the wire i mean i think it, i mean i love the show too and i feel like that was sort of in a, in a way a real strength of it as well where like you know, there are all these people and all these things that are happening in this kind of, kind of gray area. Um, and there was, wasn't a lot of like clear black and white, so to speak. Um, but you know, even the, and that's, and some people ask me about that regarding the five bullets, as you certainly remember the question of, was there, you know, how many times was this guy shot was a huge question that even I would say wasn't even ultimately, ever answered um but also became i mean certainly not unimportant but just one of those things that you had to kind of like give your best guess based on the amount of information you had as to 
you know, why and when and how those bullets were fired. Um, so yeah, I mean, and the struggle, you know, yes, there was a knife, there were other things that, that come in. Uh, there was a lot of questions I would say about what exactly happened that day, including interestingly, you know, as I, uh, reported that Terrence's father, one of the most interesting things I remember always jumps out of me from things I've heard in the book that, that I was, that I, in the interviews I did was that Terrence's father had a comment to me at one point saying that, you know, because the bloods, I mean, there was definitely an altercation going on already. And Terrence's father said regarding that, with that the bloods by the blood sort of instigating this, they opened up Pandora's box. And when they opened up Pandora's box, showbiz woke up and showbiz is Terrence's uh, gang name. And uh, so of course that was, uh, also a very interesting psychological piece of this, um, which is, I think, you know, a, a very important piece of this in all of the, of these communities. And, you know, I remember there's a statistic about PTSD in not even just simply gang communities of which this is one, but I think African-American communities. And it was that there was a higher incidence of PTSD in those communities than returning veterans of, of wars. And I felt that that was very present here. And, um, so there's a lot of the psychological side of this and there's a lot of, you know, me getting very, very deep into all this. And still there's some things that may forever be unknown. There's some things that could come out. There's some things that maybe one day some, someone's going to step forward and say something more. Um, but you know, I think I got, you know, pretty deep to a sense of what happened, but even the title, I guess, is interesting that, um, that, that it's, that there's debate or, you know, certainly a debate in the book about the five bullets. And when one person from the neighborhood said to me once, well, why is it five bullets? Cause there's, you know, debate over this question of how many. I'm going to leave you with this last thought and let you react. I, I think it was on either Showtime or HBO. A troop went down to Cuba to put on Rent, Jonathan Larson's famous play, yep. and also, be, also became a movie. And Jonathan Larson had an interesting observation. And he said, the opposite of war is not peace. It's creation. What did, what did uh, Terrence Roberts create if he did? Wow. That's a really interesting quote. And, um, love rent and RIP Jonathan Larson. Um, but, uh, so, well, what I, I mean, there were one of the things that I, there are two things that come to mind about Terrence in terms of his creation. One was a very specific thing, which was something called the Colorado camo movement. And that was something that gave, another avenue or potentially even hope or, you know, just an alternative, uh, to vulnerable youth and and also people who are already in a gang. But this was a unity movement that he had going across Denver and that had actually won over a number of people, um, and brought gang violence to an all time low in 2010. Um, and that was an important piece of the story in many ways. Um, and the other, I, I would just say is that like, um, what he sort of created too, in a, in a broader way, I don't, cause I don't know how you meant to, or if you had any uh, way you were asking specifically was, I think that he did create hope for a number of people in that neighborhood who needed it. And that was because, you know, the reality was sadly, most of the gang members, I would say, and, and, and if they were honest with themselves, the, 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 a very high number of them actually would rather get out of the gang. But it's very hard to. And they become gang members because of the fact that they don't have anything else. So if they have something else, they would go in that direction. Um, and that is really the, the reality, um, even statistically the actual most violent, um, gang members are, are something like 1%, um, of them. And, you know, we're talking about, 
you know, kids and, and, and guys who've, who've, who've been in, in, in very desperate situations and, and in any case. So I think that Terrence, uh, for a time, and, and I say that for a time because, you know, due to the events of the book, um, I don't think that's like currently something he's able to, not the events of the book, but the events of his life, uh, that not something he's able to, to really kind of do or give right now. Exactly. But, uh, in any case, uh, th- those are the two things that I think of in, or, in order in answer to your question. Well, one thing I can say, the book is a hundred percent interesting. My guest has been Julian Runestein, the book, the Holly five bullets, one gun and the struggle to save an American neighborhood. Julian, thank you so much. Nice to connect with you again. It's been quite a few years. Great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. Thank you. After the break, joining us in studio, Ellen Meister to talk about her latest novel, The Rooftop Party. We'll be right back. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Ellen Meister. His latest novel is called The Rooftop Party. Ellen is the author of several novels, including two Dorothy Parker latest stories, which are my favorites. And also, I think one book we did years ago, I think was a smart one. I think we did an interview about that. That was probably our first one, yeah. Probably the first one. And also, I said earlier, we, we kicked the show off in 2008. We're not any older, are we? No, no, no. All right. You we were, don't age. You, you were a guest of Writers on the Vine for the smart one. So here's my f- initial takeaway. And I always tell my uh, guests, you have complete latitude to say, Larry, that is a terrible question. So feel free if it is. But it, the book, the new book, The Rooftop Party, kind of reminds me a little bit of Agatha Christie mm-hmm. with a bunch of amateur sleuths. And a little bit of a soap opera with all the characters in your narrative, because there's a lot of characters and there's some interesting, what did this person do and what did that person do? So tell us a little bit about the new book, The Rooftop Party, and whether or not you agree or disagree, because you're a prolific writer. Sure. So you understand Agatha Christie. And my guess is, unless you have, you don't have a lot of free time, I think you also understand soap opera, because... They're very well written, and they're generation right. after generation after generation. Right. So uh, one interviewer had told me that the book was like um, Fleabag meets Murder, She Wrote. Okay. I so like I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I kind of got a kick out of that. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me because... I, you know, I love that you mentioned Agatha Christie. So you have to understand this is my only my second murder mystery. My first one being the book that came before this, which was Love Sold Separately. And they're both standalones, but they have the same main character. So if people want to read both, I'm absolutely thrilled. So when I got the idea for the previous book to this, um, it really started out as an idea for a character. I got an idea for this woman who gets this this actress who gets a gig as a shopping channel host and i wanted a real fish out of water kind of story kind of character and i got the idea for this woman who just was so different from those perfect pristine women who hosted those shows like on qvc and hsn and so i got the idea for this woman who was self-sabotaging and couldn't get out of her own way and maybe drank too much and smoked a little dope i just wanted a character was very very edgy but of course a character an idea for a character and either an idea for a setting is not an idea for a book so that was one of those ideas that was floating around in my head forever And I didn't know what kind of story I might write about it if I ever wrote about it. And then one day I thought, oh, my God, a murder at the shopping channel. Okay. And as soon as I had that idea, I said, oh, my, I would love to read that book. I'd love to write that book. I could see it being an amateur sleuth kind of murder mystery, kind of fun, kind of sexy, kind of sophisticated set in New York and all this stuff. It was only one problem, Larry. I wasn't a mystery writer. I I didn't know how to write a mystery. I didn't know the specific... I know you're going to bring up the smart one, which had a murder in it. But that's really interesting because uh, I'm curious about this because I learn every time I talk to somebody like you. What does it take to become a mystery writer? Because you know how to write. So what elements were you worried about that you didn't 
could, could do or could not do in terms of setting this book up. Well, that's just it. I really didn't know. I mean, I'd read murder mysteries, of course, but I'd never deconstructed to see, you know, how do you do it? How do you lead the um, reader exactly to where you want them to be? How do you set the trap? How do you create um, red herrings? So I actually had to teach myself how to write a murder mystery. I knew it was just something very, very specific in terms of how you lead the reader along. So, of course, I, you know, read a couple of a few articles on uh, God bless the the internet because you can always find information. I read some really in depth articles on on how to write a murder mystery, and um, then once I was sort of steeped in that, I went back and read a bunch of murder mysteries right, like right. Agatha Christie, for instance. Right. Now that I understood how it worked, I sort of wanted to see how the masters accomplished it. So I did some more reading, and then I felt okay. You know what? I'm prepared to do this. I'm going to write this murder mystery. I was excited to write it. I knew it was going to be fun. I knew I was going to have an amateur sleuth. I also thought, mistakenly, Larry, that I was writing the most commercial book I'd ever written because shopping channel, right. sexy, right. murder mystery, everybody likes that kind of stuff. What I didn't understand at the time is that, you know, mystery has certain very specific slots to it on the mystery shelf. So you have your thrillers, of course, and you have your procedurals. And then you have the amateur sleuth books, which are cozy mysteries. Right. So I thought, all right, well, it's sort of like a, an edgy, sexy, cozy mystery. Well, I learned that there is no such thing. Cozies tend to be very G-rated, set in a small town. It's something very, very specific. And my book did not fit into that cozy category. So there wasn't really any place for it on the murder mystery shelf. So my publisher was trying to find readers to it, hinting that it's a murder mystery, also marketing it as women's fiction, also marketing as general fiction. So it's just been kind of an interesting experiment, I think, for the publisher and for me to find the right readers for this book. So what, let me, Pete Hamill once told me this. Yeah. I love Pete Hamill. Um, I've interviewed him multiple times. He is the ultimate best in terms of being generous because he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Doesn't talk down to anybody. Right. Including this humble interviewer. He will just go with you and he just lets it flow. He said, I write what I want to read. Since this is a stretch for you. Yeah. Um, did you want to read this kind of book? I always write what I want to read. I never, and, I, and one of the things, I also teach creative writing. And I know. One of the things, and I, and I also edit for other people, one of the things I say is don't chase a market. That's the silliest thing you can do for a writer. First of all, the markets are so changeable, and you never know how they're going to twist and turn. And something that might be hot now might not be hot when you finish your book six months, a year, two, two years from now, or after it goes through production and, and hits the stores. So to write for a market is, is a very silly thing, besides the fact that writing a book is really hard. So it has to be a labor of love. You have to be writing the book that you want to read at that very moment. And so that's what I did with the rooftop party. I was excited about the idea. Um, and I don't know if you were going to get to this about no spoilers, but I think it's OK to talk about the type of murder victim we have in this book, because it happens like right very, very close to the beginning of the book. Um, I was uh, reading and very frustrated um, by all the Me Too headlines that were popping right. up at the time right. that I was writing this. And it's a very powerless feeling to see what's happening in the world. And as a writer, you know, I get to play God on those pages of my book. So I decided I was going to base a character on the most heinous headline grabbers in the Me Too movement. And what did I do, Larry? I pushed him off a roof. Well, some, somebody pushed him off the roof. So, well, I, as the author, pushed him <laughs> off a roof. Well, and that, then what you got to figure out when you're reading it is to see which character actually did so, it. So, so let me ask you. Yeah. Metaphorically, you pushing that character, Ivan yeah. Dennison, yes. off the roof. Yes. Did that feel good? It felt great. <laughs> it felt great. It felt very powerful. And I said, like I said, it's 
my books are always cathartic in some way. All right. And and this was such a great chance for me to take out all my frustrations because it was a very, very frustrating time, I think, for, for all of us, especially for us women, to be, you know, watching what's going on in the headlines and feeling like justice wasn't being served. And Larry, I got to take justice into my own hands and, you know, oh, well. dish out a little vigilanteism. I was going to say, just yeah. anticipate that. So yeah. I'm going to throw out a theme and uh, let you wrestle with this if it's correct or not. Okay. Here's the theme that I wrote it, jotted down in my notes, and I can barely read my own handwriting, by the way, so maybe That's I'm okay. not going to get it correct. But secret lies, blackmail, corporate, and personal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I th I think that's all in there. I think uh, one of the things that we have to deal with is that in, in a mystery, sort of everybody has a secret. So there's a lot of secrets, and that really helps. And this is like a little bit showing how the sausage is made. But if everybody has a secret, it really helps you create um, – uh, the red herrings, right? right? It's very hard to figure out which way to turn because you sort of suspect everybody's got something going on that you can't see. But yeah, I mean, all of those, all of those things came to to play in the book, and I, you know, I think I I, I sort of had a lot of fun with all of it. Um, I like the. F idea of having a flawed main character, right? So Dana makes a lot of mistakes. She has, in some ways, really terrible judgment and can't get out of her own way. But that's, you know, for a writer, that's really fun. You don't you don't want a perfect character who doesn't make any mistakes. Now, I believe when you have a child and that child comes into the world, the best thing you can do is give them a good name. The worst yeah. thing you can do it's given the name that kids in starting in kindergarten are going to make fun of you. Right. So how much thought goes in as a writer that naming your characters? A tremendous amount of thought. I, I think about my character's name so much. Uh, Dana Barry actually originally had a different name. She was going to be Dana Buffett. Um, and I'll, so this will sort of show you a little bit about how the trajectory works. Um, she was going to be first be Dana Buffett. And then her father, who's a doctor in the original iteration, was going to be a businessman. Okay. And I said, well, I can't give him the name Buffett. He's going to be a businessman because people will think it's supposed to be, you know, Warren Buffett. So I said, Or Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, or Jimmy <laughs> Buffett. So I, I changed the last name to Barry. And then I wound up changing her father to a doctor. And I wound up liking the name Barry anyway. It just really somehow resonated with me. I liked the way it looked on the page. I liked the way it sounded on the tongue. Um, but yeah, I do put a lot of thought into the character names. Sometimes I spend a lot of hours online, you know, Googling different ethnicities to see what, what might be a great name. And other times a name pops into my head. Sometimes I'll put it into the book as a placeholder and then I'll decide... Does that work for the character or or doesn't it? Right. And and this is really getting into the weeds of writing. But I try to be very careful not to have names that in any way sound similar to one another. I try to keep uh, the letters of the alphabet separate. So there might be more than one character, for instance, whose first name starts with an M. But I'm very cautious to try to limit the amount of characters with overlapping initials because I care about my readers. You know, and I know, listen, I would love the idea that everybody sits down and reads it in one sitting. Right. But I know that people put books down and they pick it up again. And I don't want them to get confused and say, wait a minute, who is Chelsea again? You know, I want them to be able to keep track of the characters, even if they put the book down. And maybe this is me admitting the kind of reader that I am. And I sometimes get lost in a book. But I, I like to relate to the readers and, and take care of them that way. So part A, the question is, who are your readers? And part B is... Where is the best place to read the book and what time of day? Because some people say a book is a page turner. Thrillers right. are a page. Patterson's books just go bam, 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 bam. Right. bam James Patterson. When I read for pleasure, I'll just go right through it. When I read books like yours, because I think that's my responsibility, I read, I take notes, I read, I take notes because I want to kind of understand um, what the book is all about. And if my insights are the same as the writer. So A, who are your readers? And B, where is the best place to sit down and read this book? Well, I, I think it's important. I don't really think specifically about who my readers are. I think about the book that I want to read and hope that people out there tend to agree with me and, and find it as engaging as I do. But as a writer, I really do believe it's my job to entertain the reader. Right. 
I, I want to keep the reader engaged. I want to keep them laughing. I want to keep them turning the page. So reading it wherever they're comfortable, wherever they're having fun. Um, I don't care whether they're sitting on a beach. I was very excited to that um, book reporter called it a contender for beach read of the year. Right. And Long Island Woman called it their their summer pick of the year. So so that's very exciting. And if people want to read it on the beach, that's great. But whatever, they're, they're comfortable kicking back and, and enjoying the book. And whether they want to read it in one sitting or 10 sittings, I, I'm just thrilled that they're that they're reading it. Now, I worked in television. I used to work as a producer for the Extra Help Channel. And, of course, I had my own television program, which you were kind of be a guest on. Yes. Davidson and Company. In fact, you can go to the website and find one of the interviews there. It's there about 30-plus interviews, and you're part of that. So what also interests me is behind the scenes. And you give us a little bit of insight behind the scenes at the Shopping Channel. Right. Um, with the various players who have a semblance of power, whether they do or not, in the makeup room where the gossip is. Right. On set, what's going on, which we don't see. And also the fact that they're, in a sense, the art of selling something to somebody maybe that doesn't want to buy it, but you're selling them. Right. When it's a pocketbook or skin cream or whatever. Right. That is really interesting. It's a sense. It's a, it's a manipulation. That was a lot of fun for me. So I really do come to this from a marketing background. I came to writing and not a sales background, but I was an advertising copywriter. So I think that I do have a hat that I put on where I think about, you know, really selling things to people. But as far as doing the shopping channel stuff, it was sort of a mixture. A lot of it was just a figment of my imagination. I just, you know, invented a lot of it whole cloth. That said, after I was deep into writing uh, Love Sold Separately, which is the previous book that took place at the shopping channel, I decided to take a tour of QVC Okay. because I discovered that uh, they are located in Pennsylvania, which is a day trip from, from where I live in New York. And they had various levels of tours and the very top tour, not a free tour, it was an expensive tour to take. You could go on a very specific backstage tour with just a few people. I think they limited to eight people, but you really get to see the background and everything. You get to go on the on the soundstage, you get to meet the personalities, uh, you get to go into the studio. So I really got to see everything. And it was just a an interesting opportunity for me to get a sense of what I got right and what I got wrong. And even a couple of things maybe I didn't get quite right, but I needed to take a little bit of license with for the for the sake of the fiction. Right. Yeah. But it, it was it was interesting and fun to go on that tour and just get, even though I like to use my imagination, little details to add that that verisimilitude that I like to put into my books. Now anybody that's gonna listen to this podcast is gonna realize that you have high energy. When you sit, and I, I, I love that, by the way. Thank you. You're making it really easy. I'm just going to give you my you. notes and you can do whatever you want with them. <laughs> I am a chatty Cathy, yeah. Well, that's, that's perfect for my purposes. But do you write with high energy? Yes, I think I do write with high energy. And it was interesting because this book, and I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. So I was writing this book under contract and I had a deadline. And I wrote about 70 pages. And for whatever reason, I got stuck. And I was busy with other projects and whatnot. And I woke up one day and I looked at the calendar and I said, holy cow, I got maybe three or four months to finish this book and I hardly have anything written. And I was, you know, so agitated and sweating it because normally it takes me six months to a year to write a book. Right. And I thought, well, should I ask my publisher for an extension? And, you know, how do I handle it? And I said to one of my writer friends, I went to her, you know, weeping. I don't know what to do. I just it's like I woke up from a dream and or a nightmare and realized that this book is due in three months. And I thought she was going to say, oh, don't worry about it. I'm sure your editor will give you an extension. Instead, what she said was, I know you can do it. And that was all I needed to hear. And I wrote almost this entire book in three in three months time that's quick which is for me that's i know that there are writers i know for instance there are romance writers because um those folks can like write maybe two three four books a year sometimes well, there's a formula which, we, it, yeah i'm still it's still not an easy task to do and i'm in awe of those those folks um so for me it was just really extraordinary that i and and 
Um, I'm not going to say it was a breeze. I was not used to sitting at my desk for such long periods of time. It was actually physically demanding to be you know, still for that long, but I just had to get those pages done. And in the end, I was thrilled with the book. So it amazed me that I was able to write that quickly. I just didn't know I had it in me until I actually did it. I know my limitations. I can never be an actor, especially on the stage. Dana wants to be an actor. Yes. That's a very important part of the book with this Sweat City Company, something that's- That's right, Sweat City, yeah. Company. And that's she, her acting troupe, And yeah. she, it weaves into the storyline because she's kind of doing it sub rosa. Right. Based on her contract. So the playoff between being an actress and why that is so important to her and her, in a sense, self-worth and relationships with others and the fact that she can make a lot more money being on the shopping channel, does she wrestle with that? She does wrestle with it. And now I'm going to let you in on, on a secret. When any writer has an artist in a book, whether they're an actor, a photographer, a painter, that is almost always a stand-in for how the writer feels about their own art and how the writer feels about writing. So, so much of my thoughts and my heart about the craft the art, craft, and business of writing comes into play right. in Dana's attitude about acting and also the nexus of, of art and commerce, which is where which is so important as a as an author of a book, right? You you create a book, it's a work of art, you publish a book, now it's now it's a product to sell. So it's Dana has to struggle with a lot of the same things that I struggle with in terms of taking the art and taking the commerce and finding a, a way to mix the two together. There's little gems in this book. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I pick out things that resonate with me okay. as commentary. And the book is about relationships between men and women and co-workers and good people and bad people. Right. But the little gem is, in terms of a relationship between a man and a woman, the role of buying a couch. Right. I love that part. Now, I, I want to know if you want to touch upon that because it gets into a very personal relationship with uh, Dana and her boyfriend, which is NYPD detective. But it speaks volumes about relationships between people who care about each other but also have qualms. Right. The, the couch does actually become a, an important symbol in their relationship. So I don't want to you know, give any spoilers here. But, but you, you wrote that. And I really appreciate that because, yes, I realize with symbolism, but you did it in such a nice way. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. I, you know, I enjoy finding those 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 set pieces that can help really illustrate what's going on between these two characters in terms of the differences between them, the similarities between them, the love between them, and where they come together and where they come apart. So these are all such important pieces and something like shopping for a couch at Ikea can can help illustrate all of that. Now there's another one. There's a classic book called Charlotte's Web. Correct. And One of my favorites. Uh, I, I yeah. see why it's in the book. And then uh, Dana has to take care of her nephew, so she's reading, reading Charlotte's Web to him. But there's an underlying message there, and I think you utilize that in terms of talking about life and death. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, the, one of the funny things about, about writing a book, a and lot you of it, you got to think about it for a second, because yeah. I wonder if that's a good question for you. You know, uh, so much of the book is planned, and I do, especially with a with murder mystery, you have to think very hard about the plot, right? Because all the pieces have to fit together like, like a puzzle, and it's very, very specific. But there are moments where you just write and you just sort of let your own subconscious and your own thoughts and feelings wash over you. And if you pull something from your own life and it feels right to, to put in the scene, very often I'll just go with it. Okay. And Charlotte's Web is one of those things. Obviously, it really speaks to me. I remember reading it to my children when they were small more than once. And I remember just reading like this exquisitely beautiful sentence that was so beautiful. It, it choked me up and I had to stop reading just because I appreciated it so much. So as I'm, I'm writing and yes, I mean, Charlotte's Web has all those themes about friendship and about death and about the circle of life. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful book and it, it encompasses everything. I, I thought it was an interesting uh, piece to, to put into the, into the book. And like I said, when I was sitting there writing and I just, it just was something that popped into my head and I thought about it for a minute and I said, wow, this, I think this is really going to work here. 
Now, I have two favorite characters for different reasons. Okay. One is Ashley. Okay. And the other is Dana's father. I love Ashley. I do not like her father. <laughs> Maybe he's so old school, but he's very rigid. Right. Doesn't treat her very well in terms of acknowledging what she is. And right. she suffers from that in a sense. And I find those characters diametrically opposed, but I found them really interesting. Talk about that character development on your part. Sure. Uh, thanks. That's such a great question. Uh, the dad. You know, it's so interesting to me to have a difficult character in a book. And I think any writer would probably agree with this. You put a difficult character in a scene with your main character, and you could almost sit back and let them take over. You know, sparks are going to fly. Things are always going to be interesting. I love writing scenes like that. Um, you know, to me, those those scenes always have so much life in them when you've got two characters that are cross purposes. Right. And I loved creating her father, who was a really difficult guy, really impossible and never gave Dana what she needed. But on the other hand, I really felt like I understood what made him tick and, and who he was. So he was really interesting and fun for me to write, uh, to create somebody that difficult. Possibly, probably inspired by a couple of real people in my life. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting to write her, her father. And then with the assistant, um, I just, she sort of showed up on the page. I wanted to have somebody who brought a lot of life to the page and somebody who was ambitious. Right. And similar to Dana, but different enough that it would be interesting. So I came up with this southern pageant girl, um, this sort of statuesque beauty. And I it sort of uh, she was game for anything. And I just had a whole lot of fun with her and had to sort of figure out how to write her her southernisms. And I, I was told by, by a southerner that I, I got it right. So I felt pretty proud of that. Now, there's a scene in Central Park. Right. It involves a unique use um, Spanx. Yes. No? Yes. All right. So that that's yeah. funny. Yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's it's really funny. So I don't know how much you want to give about the setting up of, of the scene. Yeah. But come on. I laughed. Oh, I'm glad you laughed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I if I want to give too many spoilers, but yes, um, Ashley was wearing Spanx and it sort of came in uh, very handy when somebody had an injury in that scene. I, again, you know, that was one of those moments I hadn't planned it when I was making my notes for the scene, but I'm writing the scene and, and you know, there's that accident and, and there's that injury, which I knew was going to happen. All of a sudden I thought, I said, you know, what can I use in this scene for this moment? And I thought, oh, Spanx would be good. So, yeah, I wrote it. I'm, I'm glad you got a kick out of that. I, it was one of those things I'm writing, and I, I sort of laughed out loud because it took me by surprise as I was writing it. Now, there's a whole bunch of the book that's in the middle, but the beginning is a rooftop party. Right. The end ends with a party, and then the suspense tends to escalate because right. Dana doesn't know because part of it hard thinks, well, maybe – Right. I pushed him. Right. Because it was a blackout. Right. And I'm, I'm going to give a lot away, but right. that's the beginning of the book. And she's worried about her friend and the son of the man who died. And then you start to rev it up and rev it right. up and rev it up till the killer is revealed. And I like the way you did that. Thank you. Uh, you know, that's that's where, you know, you have to take all the puzzle pieces and find yes. like the exact right way to fit them together. So, like I said, Larry, I knew um, the red herrings I wanted to put in place. And, you know, what the, the trick is to, 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 to take a red herring and put another red herring in front of it. So people see beyond the first red herring and they think, ah, I figured it out. She doesn't want me to know it's that other thing. But that other thing is actually hiding the real truth. So I try to do layers of that. So, yes, it's setting up all the people who could possibly be the murder and then setting up the reveal. And what you want to do for the reveal, which I think is important, which a lot of uh, mystery writers do, is to try to get all the main characters in the room, you know, for that scene like in, in Colombo, you know, where, right. where, you know, where the, where the truth comes out and everybody is there and everybody could be a suspect. Uh, so it's kind of fun to, it's one of the most fun scenes to write, to get everybody in the room and piece by piece, you know, reveal to the reader, you know, who the actual murderer is. That's funny because I did sit down with Peter Falk. Peter Falk, oh. writers on the vine. He did my television program. And I did another program with him at the 92nd Street Y. And you know what? He was Colombo. 
Was he really? He was Columbus. He, yeah. was, he was terrific. And, and that's yeah. one of the things I always look back to. I had a chance yeah. to sit down yeah. with uh, Peter Falk. I want to talk about other connections. The books I really like with you bring us inside the world of Dorothy Parker. Right. Because I always say to people, is there a Monday version of the Algonquin Roundtable? Because if there is, I would pay to sit in right. and be a fly in the wall. And I, with those books, I think you did a terrific job. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I was a Dorothy Parker fan going way back. I mean, to my teenage years. And again, it was it was the kind of a thing where I got a character idea and then had to sort of find a, right. a, a plot to wrap around it. And my first thought with the Dorothy Parker books was, you know, I didn't always know I wanted to write a book about Dorothy Parker, but I always knew that she was an icon to me, almost like a mentor to me in terms right. of writing. I, I admire her wit. I admire her insight. You know, a lot of people do know about her wit, but they a lot of people don't know about the short stories she wrote, which can be so tender and heartfelt, and how she was a great champion of uh, civil rights. So I always admired her. She was sort of a hero to me. And I don't know if you remember, Larry, quite a number of years ago, there were a million books came out that paid homage to um, Jane Austen. Right. Which, you know, another great writer who I love. And I just noticed that there were just so many of them at once. And I thought, you know, it's great. And I love that people are still discovering Jane Austen. But I wonder why only Jane Austen gets gets that treatment and not other favorite women authors like, say, Dorothy Parker. And you were talking before about, you know, writing the book that you want to read. I thought, ah, oh, I would love to read a book where somebody made Dorothy Parker a character. And then I said, so I said, somebody should write that. Then I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's you. Me. It's you. And I was immediately terrified because, you know, talk about ambitious. I'm going to write in Dorothy Parker's voice. But once I got the idea, it wouldn't leave me alone. And I knew right away that I needed to work out my own fantasies about Dorothy Parker and have her sort of come back to life in a modern day setting and give a, a woman advice. So that's that was the birth of those two books. Now, I'm going to kind of. Switch gears a little bit. I hate that cliche, switch gears, but everybody uses it. So sure. who am I not to use another cliche? Did you watch the reunion of Friends? Yes, I did. Of course because I, did. I believe there's a personal connection there. Is that right? Yes, there's a personal connection. Lisa Kudrow is my cousin. So, yeah, I was very excited to watch the reunion of Friends. And in fact, Lisa... Um, posted on Instagram about this book right about the time that the Friends reunion was coming out. She recommended the rooftop party to her followers, which was very generous of her. Now, on a more serious note, you are prolific on Twitter. Yes. I know Darren Strauss, who's a great writer. He's been a guest on this podcast and also my TV program in the past, also Writers on the Vine. And he was shortlisted for Joyce Carol Oates Literary Award. And because of what he puts on Twitter, people went after him. Mm. You put a lot of stuff out there I do. in terms of the political world. I read you. I read it. I follow you. Um, some stuff is about your personal life. Right. But also, you, you put stuff out there. Are you worried about a backlash in terms of what you do as a writer? I worry a little bit, Larry, to be honest. But, you know, I'm a very passionate human being, and I see what's going on in the world. And there's a part of me that wants to save the world. So I know tweeting doesn't save the world, but it makes me feel a little less powerless about the political landscape. If I can just sort of get out there and put out my passionate feelings about things, I think it also helps me feel connected to other human beings who feel the same way as me. Okay. And it's supremely satisfying to be able to touch people and connect with people who have the same feelings that I do. Now, before I let you go, I have a suggestion for your next book. I think it should be about the Food Channel. Because okay. you put something out on Twitter about no raisins in coleslaw. Yeah. And you've been, do <laughs> and you've been doing a survey on a pizza. Is that correct? Yes. And yes. I, you got a lot of responses. That was really interesting. So, yes, I have. I had a, a, the book that I'm working on now, which is wrestling with my hard drive. I'm almost finished with it. Um I had a scene where somebody makes a passing reference to grandma pizza. Right. Now, my family loves grandma pizza. And I had no idea if that was just a Long Island thing or a New York thing or if anybody else knew about it. So I crowdsourced it on Twitter. 
And I found out that nobody outside of Long Island knows what, or New York, I should say, knows what Grandma Pizza is. So it really helped me write the book because I realized I have to explain exactly, exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, I, it's it's interesting that you say that. I'm I'm not writing about the Food Network, but food is finding its way into this current book. I'm writing an awful lot. Did you like watching the, the TV show with Anthony Bourdain? Did you ever watch that? Yeah, I've watched it several times. I Yeah, I think it's interesting. I love it because, and you know, ironically, he was somebody who had such joie de vivre. You know, he yes. just loved life so much. Um, so I thought he was interesting as a man. He was interesting as a, as a human being. And, you know, the exotic places he went and the exotic foods, it was interesting. There was a lot to learn. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So here's what we're going to do for the last question. Sure. I know when I go home at night, I think back and I said, that was a good question. That wasn't such a good question. And I should ask that question. Right. So if I, if I left something out and you can interview yourself, right. what question would that be for yourself? Um, I think maybe just to talk about a little bit about what comes next, because, you know, this is the funny thing about writing a book. You know, you do, you work on it. It's your whole life for so long. And then it goes into production, right? And it takes six months or a year for it to come out. By the time it comes out, you are completely engrossed, generally speaking, with writing another book. And you have to sort of switch gears. So I'm just happy to tell people that I am writing another book. It's not part of this series. It's not a Dana Barry book. It's something completely different. Um, it's a dark domestic comedy. All right. And it's right, almost an oxymoron, dark domestic yeah, it is comedy. A dark, yeah. I, you know, it's, I'm calling it like I Love Lucy meets Breaking Bad. Okay. Um, so it's really, really edgy. It's really subversive. Uh, the working title is Take My Husband. Please. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're calling it just Take My Husband. And it uh, looks like it's going to be on the schedule for next August. So just stay tuned and check my website, ellenmeister.com, and sign up for my newsletter and you'll get all the news. All right, I want to thank my guest in the first segment, Julian Rubenstein, talking about his book, The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and the Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood, and the great Ellen Meister, who's got to get over her shyness. Her latest book is called The Rooftop Party. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her.